Father, we are thankful to you for your grace, your love, your mercy, for your peace, that peace which passes all understanding. The fact that as we step forth each day from our houses to go about our business, that we can do so in the faith that you are with us and that every part of our lives is sacred as we commit it to you, whether it be work or play, whether it be study, uh, travel, whatever it is. Uh, the scripture says that whatever we do, we are to do it unto the Lord. And I pray that that will be our attitude and our understanding. And Father, as we study your word a little further today, I pray that the word of God will continue to shape us, just like the uh, sculptor's chisel and mallet, uh, working at us, uh, shaping us more and more each day into the image of Christ as we understand your truth and as we apply it to our lives. Lord, I thank you for each one in this room today and pray your special blessing. You know the individual needs. We're just really grateful for your blessing upon the Mexico team, for bringing each one back safely, and, and for how you work through them. And we know only eternity will attest to the ultimate uh, fruit of what you accomplished through these people this past week. And I trust that the work that you've begun in the young people that went down there will continue and that they will have a sense of calling to missions, whether it be to go, to give, to pray, uh, all of those or whichever of those, Lord, you lay upon their hearts, but certainly that they will be world Christians and that we will all have a, a, a vision beyond a Reading, beyond California, even though these are our immediate fields of work, to see that in the regions beyond there is a great need, especially for prayer. And so we are grateful for all that you're doing and will do in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll turn to Exodus chapter 20, the scripture, both Old and New Testament, speak much relative to these issues that are presented in the Ten Commandments because they're foundational, they're basic. And from those we have the expansion, and we'll see how that really applies even again today as we look at verse 15 of Exodus 20, which simply says, you shall not steal. Property was considered to be inviolable. There is absolutely no biblical proscription on property ownership. A lot of people try to use the Bible to argue one way or another towards some kind of a economic system, whether it be uh, socialism or capitalism or whatever else might be their particular love. But the scripture does talk about private property and, and the scripture in every way supports private property, legitimate private property. Biblically, the people have a right to possess. We as, as a people and, and the ancient Israel, Israelis had a right to possess real estate. They had a right to possess material objects. And no one else had a right to come and take that real estate or take those objects from another person, either secretly or violently, <coughs> without the knowledge and without the consent of the owner. That's just a basic biblical principle. Now, the Hebrew word here for steal can be expanded with several English words. Theft, for example. Robbery is another. Burglary is another. All of these terms are enfolded into the Hebrew word here for steal. Basically, it covers the secret or violent removal of another's property without permission. That's, that's a pretty broad statement when you think about that. 
and it can apply to anything from Brinks robberies down to plagiarism. Included in an understanding of the word steal is uh, several concepts, and we'll look at four of them first here. One of them is injury to another's property through either violent action or carelessness. Something you've done which causes destruction to their property or something you failed to do which causes harm or destruction to someone's property. In just two chapters over, Exodus chapter 22, we have a very interesting little passage here, uh, beginning at the first verse of chapter 22 of Exodus. Now, of course, we have to <laughs> redefine a few things here in our own lives because most of us don't have to worry about having our ox stolen. <laughs> but we could put in that place a car, I suppose, because car theft is a very common factor in our society. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall pay five oxen for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. If the thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guiltiness on his account. In other words, if the thief is killed while stealing, the person who kills the thief will not be held in account for murder. Except, verse 3, but if the sun has risen on him, there will be blood guiltiness on his account. In other words, verse 2 implies a nighttime theft. You don't know who this person is. You don't know how many there are. You don't know what's going on. But in the daytime, you can see what's going on. You could call in reinforcements. You could scare the person off. You could capture him or whatever. So to, to kill him in that instance, there is blood guiltiness on his account. But then it goes on to speak of, of, the, of the robber in the second half of verse 3. He shall surely make restitution if he owns nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft, thus sold into slavery. If what he stole is actually found alive in his possession, whether an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. So if you're a thief, it's better to be caught while you still have the goods than after you've peddled the goods. Because you'll have to pay double here. If you peddle the goods, it's five or four times. If a man lets a field or a vineyard to, uh, be grazed bare and lets his animal loose so that it grazes in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own land and the best of his own vineyard. You could say, oh, well, I didn't know my ox had gotten out of my property and was eating your fine grass. <laughs> well, whether you knew it or not, you have to make restitution, even for grass. Can you imagine? Grass for grass. Well, obviously, in that case, it, of course, has to do with the economic benefit of both persons. Secondly, there is a, a biblical statement directly relating to what we would call indirect theft that is the result of indifference on the part of the person. If you go to chapter 22 of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 22, we got oxes and sheep again, but that's our, our oxen and sheep again, but that's all right. We can translate. Deuteronomy 22, beginning at verse 1. You shall not see your countryman's ox or his sheep straying away and pay no attention to them. You shall certainly bring them back to your countrymen. And if your countryman is not near you or if you do not know him, then you shall bring it home to your house and it shall remain with you until your countryman looks for it. Then you shall restore it to him. And thus you shall do with his donkey, and you shall do the same with his garment. You should do likewise with anything lost by your countrymen, which he has lost and you have found. You are not allowed to neglect them. 
You shall not see your countryman's donkey or his ox fallen down on the way and pay no attention to them. You shall certainly help him to raise them up. It's kind of a your brother's keeper concept, is it not? If, if your brother's ox wanders away, not meaning your literal brother, but your neighbor, you're to help get that ox back in the field. Or if the guy's away on a vacation, you keep it until he comes home, making sure he knows you're just keeping it until he gets home when he gets back, of course. Otherwise, you could be uh, called for theft. <laughs> but, you know, it's just a sense of, of concern for one another. And this, of course, expresses what God wants. It's, it's what the body of Christ is all about. The body of Christ is a body wherein we care for one another. I care for you and you care for me. And, and if I know that you have a need, I, I try to help meet your need and vice versa, hopefully. And, and that's the way the body of Christ is to function. And, and this really is, is directly based in the Ten Commandments, as, as they are fully explained here in the Old Testament and, of course, often interpreted in the New. Thirdly, the fraudulent retention of another's property, which means also borrowing and not returning. Ever read uh, Dagwood very much? <laughs> Back to Exodus 22 again. If a man gives his neighbor a donkey an ox, a sheep, or any animal to keep for him, and it dies, or is hurt, or is driven away while no one was looking, an oath before the Lord shall be made by the two of them, that he has not laid hands on his neighbor's property, and its owner shall accept it, and he shall not make restitution. But if it is actually stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it is all torn to pieces, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn to pieces. And if a man borrows anything from his neighbor, and it is injured or dies while its owner is not with it, he shall make full restitution. If its owner is with it, he shall not make restitution. If it is hired, it came for its hire. If your neighbor says, you know, watch my car for me, and you're watching his car, and somebody comes along and slams into it, it's not your fault. You don't have to make restitution. <laughs> but if his car gets stolen while you're watching out for it, you have to repay the car. I mean, translating into modern terms. Because you should have watched out for it. That's what he had you watch, for, watch it for. And then, of course, as it says here concerning borrowing, we borrow something and we lose it and we wreck it, we destroy it. it it's our responsibility to repay it in full. Th this can create some real hard feelings. And this is, of course, something that people can easily slide by. Just kind of push off the side and say, well, it's not really my responsibility anyway. Well, if a person's a believer, it's your responsibility. And uh, that's what the scripture is trying to teach the, um, the Israelis. To look out for each other. To do everything with full integrity and full honesty. Uh, the, the, next, uh, the next couple of uh, statements here in the Ten Commandments, the next one particularly having to do with false witness, really deals with this question of honesty and integrity and truth. And, and this is, of course, expressing it in a tangible way as far as goods are concerned and property is concerned. Then, then the fourth... Uh, term here which can be used to actually define stealing also 
is a very, very serious one, and uh, that is kidnapping. As you turn back to the 21st chapter of Exodus and you look down at verse 16, it's very straight and to the point. He who kidnaps a man, whether he sells, sells him or he is found in his possession, he shall be put to death. Kidnapping was a very, very serious crime. And anybody who kidnapped, and when it says a man, of course, that means man, woman, child, uh, any human being, uh, there was a very, very serious penalty applied here. But as we went through these four, and we'll be looking at some other covert versions of uh, stealing here in a minute, but as we looked through these, uh, we discovered that the penalty in Israel uh, under God's law for theft was actually milder than the penalty was in Egypt or any of the other lands of the people that surrounded Israel at that time. Commonly in that day, the penalty for any theft was, that was it. Uh, today we think of the uh, Arab lands as being very harsh where somebody's caught stealing, they simply lop a hand off. You get caught stealing again and uh, you lose the other hand, you're in real big trouble. But at least you're probably going to stop stealing. But, but in most of the pagan lands, it was death. But you'll notice here, that is not so. In Israel, multiple restoration and restitution was the answer. You steal somebody's ox, and you sell that ox, and it's gone, you, and you're caught, you have to repay five oxen, five times. Or if you steal the ox and you're caught along the way, you have to pay that ox plus another one to the person. The death penalty in Israel for theft was only applied under two instances. We just read one, kidnapping. Kidnapping was taken more seriously uh, in terms of its impact than the others and uh, resulted in a death penalty for the kidnapper. Uh, there is one other instance in which theft resulted in the death penalty. And if we turn to Joshua chapter 7, we can see what that was. You may remember the account. Israel is about ready to, uh, to storm the city of Jericho. And God said that anything of value in this city, gold, silver, fine cloth, and so forth, is dedicated to God. It was the first fruit, if you will, of the conquest. Anything captured in Jericho was to be God's. After that, they sacked other towns. They could keep what they got out of it. But the first town was the first fruit. And all that was in there was dedicated unto God. So the scripture says it was put under the ban. Verse 11, Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I have commanded them. They have even taken some of the things under the ban, and both stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have also put them among their own things. You remember what happened? Achan buried gold and a garment and so forth in his own tent. And what was the ultimate result of this? Verse 25, and Joshua said, why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned them, that is Achan, his wife, and all of his children with stones. And they were burned with fire after they had stoned them with stones. Stealing that which was dedicated to God was a capital crime. But other theft was to be dealt with by restoration or restitution. Now, certain things were not defined as theft, which we might define as theft today. 
In the case of desperate need, somebody is dying of hunger, the scripture says that that person has the right to go into someone's field and satisfy his need, satisfy his hunger. De Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 24. When you enter your neighbor's vineyard, then you may eat grapes until you are fully satisfied, but you shall not put any in your basket. When you enter your neighbor's standing grain, then you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not wield a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. You had the right to go in and pick what you needed to survive, but you could not carry any off. You couldn't take some home for the next day. If you were still hungry the next day, you had to go back and satisfy your need uh, in the field or in the vineyard or in the orchard or wherever it might be. This was one of God's ways of providing for the, the people which we would today call homeless, uh, the welfare people. In, in other passages of Scripture, it says that uh, a farmer was not to cut every bit of his grain. He was to leave the corners. The corners of the field were to be left standing so that the poor, the indigent, the traveler could uh, pick from that area and satisfy his need as he was going along or as he lived in the area. This was God's way of providing. See, God cared. Yes, God honors private property, but God cares for those who don't have what they need for whatever reason that they don't have what they need. They were to be provided for, and this was the way by which they were provided. Now, of course, as is true of virtually every teaching in the Scripture, when Jesus begins to talk about it, he cuts to the chase. I mean, Jesus comes right down to the point of the real root of it all. And let me just read a, a verse from, from Matthew 15, uh, verse 19. It's, it's very, very parallel to many other uh, passages we've already read relative to other of the commandments. Jesus says in verse 19 of Matthew 15, For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders, out of the heart. Theft is a perversion of the heart. Someone who is committed to, to a life of theft, it, it's a heart problem. It, it's not a, uh, oh, momentary little glitch along the way that keeps happening momentarily. <laughs> but it's, it's, a, it's a matter of the heart, a heart that has not been transformed, a heart that has not been changed by the living God. Now, what happens is the scripture, as you've probably noticed, starts to get down to the nitty-gritty of where we live. And, and the scripture really meddles in our lives, doesn't it? There are some who would never perform an overt act of burglary, burglary. They'd never walk up to a bank teller and stick a gun in the face and say, hand over your cash. But there are many, many shady situations that happen in which people attempt to rationalize that there really is nothing wrong. Let me read from the sixth chapter of Leviticus relative to this point. When a person sins, this is verse 2 of uh, Leviticus 6, when a person sins and acts unfaithfully against the Lord and deceives his companion in regard to a deposit or a security entrusted to him, 
or through robbery, or if he has extorted from his companion, or has found what was lost and lied about it, and sworn falsely, so that he sins in regard to any one of the things a man may do, then it shall be when he sins and becomes guilty, that he shall restore what he took by robbery, or what he got by extortion, or deposit which was entrusted to him, or the lost thing which he found, or anything about which he swore falsely, he shall make restitution for it in full, and add to it one-fifth more. He shall give it to the one to whom it belongs on the day he presents his guilt offering. You know, it's, it's really pretty easy for, and, and this has happened. You've probably heard of the New Era Investment Organization that recently, wasn't that what it was called, New Era? The, the one, anyway, that it was uh, working with Christian institutions and they said that they had a lot of money that was ready to be helped used to help Christian institutions and whatever they paid into this organization within six months they would get double that amount back. And so many were sucked into this and they paid their money in and the first ones did get their double money back. But as time went on there weren't any people who were actually back of this ready to match. You know it wasn't a real matching fund. It was what they call and you may have read about in the Reader's Digest a Ponzi racket where you just use new money to cover old money. And anyway, the guy who was heading this up was a respected Christian businessman who, when the whole thing was blown open, uh, said he just didn't really think he was doing anything wrong. You know? But you know, if you take somebody's money and, and as the ultimate result, they lose that money because they trusted you and you were op operating a crooked racket, that's theft. And the U.S. government considers that theft, too, uh, as well as Scripture. A person may be well-intentioned, but if what he does is, is wrong, then he's responsible, and that's a form of theft. And, and the Scripture makes that quite clear. And, and here it even talks about you find something, you know it belongs to so-and-so, but you say you never found it, and you keep it for your own profit. I mean, that's theft. Well, what we have a little phrase we used to say when we were a kid, you know, finders, keepers, losers, weepers. I'm sure you all heard that. But that's not biblical. <laughs> Unless, of course, you have no idea who, who lost it. But even then, you should make an effort to find out who lost it. If you're walking downtown the streets of San Francisco, as I was one day, I got out of my car, parked my car in a not real wonderful neighborhood, downtown San Francisco, and, and one of my wheels seemed a little bit low. I went over to look at it, and there right up against the wheel was a $20 bill. You know, so, well, I picked up the $20 bill, obviously. I looked around. There was nobody, but what are you going to do? Put an ad in the newspaper and say, did anybody in San Francisco lose a $20 bill? If so, what was the serial number? But if you see somebody pull money out and something goes fluttering off out of the side and they don't notice it and you pick it up and stick it in your pocket, I mean, that's, that's theft. And, and that's what the scripture is, is talking about here. Uh, really, you know, for us to do that, I mean, it's a temptation, I would think, for most of us. I mean, some people, <laughs> money doesn't mean anything to them. But for, for most of us, it, it's a bit of a temptation. But we have to remember that you know, it, greed, greed is, is, is something that can get a hold of us just like that. 
You can be flying through life, uh, seemingly uh, doing everything right, and, and not a real concept or a sense of greed at all. It can just strike you out of the blue. That's why we have to be on guard as believers. And if we know the Word, the Word of God's hidden in our hearts, then it guards us against these things. And immediately the flags fly. You can't keep this. It belongs to them. You know that. <laughs> right. And so you give it back. Well, there are other covert forms of theft that the Scripture talks about. For example, in Deuteronomy 19, we read this verse. In verse 14, it says, You shall not move your neighbor's boundary mark, which the ancestors have set. Now, today, that's hard to do. <laughs> uh, you might move your fence line, but that doesn't mean that you've inherited that property you moved your fence across, because there are plans and, and there are maps and so forth which make it exactly specific as to where property lines are. But in the old days, I mean, once it was, quote, surveyed as best they could in those days, a marker was placed and that marker was set there and it was supposed to remain there forever and ever. It was placed in perpetuity. And for you to move it is theft. You're, the you're stealing your neighbor's land by moving that boundary marker. And that was something you could do, but it was illegal to do. It was immoral to do. And then something that I think probably everybody in this room has been guilty of at some point in time, and which we probably could easily argue is not even theft. But let me just read this, and, and you think about it for a minute, and um, see what it says. Let, let me just read these two verses to you from Isaiah 55, 1. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk, without money and without cost. That's wonderful and fine. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen to me carefully and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Now there are, also, um, there are several different spiritual connotations and implications and applications from this, but I think there's a practical one here too. Not that spiritual ones aren't practical, but I mean a, a tangible one that applies here too, and that's in verse 2, first line. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Do you know it's possible for you to rob yourself? I can rob myself by foolishly using my money, by using my money for things which do not meet my needs. And then when my need arises, I don't have the resources to meet that need. I have robbed myself by squandering my money on something else. For example, let me use something that might be very practical in the college community, for example. Semester's beginning. You know you have to buy textbooks for the various classes. But the night before you go to buy textbooks, you're so hungry, and your, your roommates think, hey, let's go out and have a pizza. So you go out and buy a pizza, you spend 20 bucks on pizza and drinks and salad and whatever else the next day, you don't have money to buy that textbook. It could easily be argued, well, there's nothing wrong with that. Really? Haven't we just stolen from ourselves, in effect, by squandering money on that which does not satisfy because, you know, the scripture does talk about bread here, but the person who went out to do this, I don't think was starving to death. I've not yet run into a college student that was starving to death. Um, they may not really uh, 
think that whatever they're eating in the cafeteria is, is exactly mama's home cooking. But there's enough to eat to keep them going. You know, it's, it's, it's a desire and, and not actually a need. I think profligate spending of one's resources for things which do not meet the ultimate needs and the real needs of our lives is a form of theft, theft against ourselves. Then, of course, there's that powerful statement in Scripture about robbing God, robbing God. We've all heard sermons preached, I'm sure, on Malachi chapter 3, beginning at verse 8. I have yet to try to understand how it can be that a person can be a professing believer who claims to be born again, living within the church of God, and yet not contributing financially at all to the ministry of the church of God. I cannot even fathom that. A person like that needs to sit down and be forced to, to listen to J. Vernon McGee and let him preach a few sermons in that person's ear via tape. <laughs> uh, Vernon McGee was, it, it, though many of you are familiar with him, he was one of the most practical preachers I've ever heard, and he never pulled any punches. And he, he even went so far as to say that uh, the person who will not give to God is not a believer, underscore, exclamation point, no matter what anybody tries to say. Verse 8, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed thee? In tithes and in offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house, and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows, then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it may not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. And all the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. After Israel returned from Babylon to Jerusalem. And God had ordered them to rebuild the temple. And they had not been in the process of rebuilding the temple. There was a prophet at that time whose name was Haggai. And Haggai said this, God said this through Haggai. In the second year, now let's go down to the fourth verse of chapter 1 of Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, that is the temple, lies desolate. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And the people come back, and the first thing they did was rebuild their own houses, and obviously, from the statement here, built them pretty nicely. Your paneled homes. And yet the temple still was in ruins. And they had done nothing 
to begin to resurrect the temple as God had ordered them to do. And as goods had been sent and money had been sent even by, the, by Cyrus, the great of Persia, to, to this, for this to happen. And they had not done it. This was a form of robbing God. And, you know, I, I can see how it happens. We get caught in this, this vicious circle. Uh, I got all these bills to pay. And, you know, if I, if I, if I take out 10% or whatever percent you feel the Lord has laid on your heart, uh, if I take that out, I, I, I won't come with enough to, to meet the, end, the bills at the end of the month. Well, let me guarantee this to you. That if you don't take out what you've promised to God, you for sure will not be able to pay your bills at the end of the month. That's how God operates. You shortchange him, hey, he'll see to it that you don't have enough. As it even says here, you've sown a lot, but you harvest a little. You eat, but there's never enough. You drink, and there's never enough. You put your money in the bag, it's got holes in it. Ever feel like that sometimes? I just always feel like, not always, but every once in a while felt like, no matter how much I, I, I try to save a little, it always goes here, goes there. Get everything up and running, the car breaks down, you know. And then they get that fixed and the roof leaks and the heater breaks down or you got to go to the hospital. I mean, it seems like forever things happen. But if we honor God with the first fruits, he'll see to it that the other needs are met. And it's amazing how he does that. There have been times that I could not sit down and actually put on paper how in the world this need got met. I couldn't do it. I, the numbers don't add up, but the need got met. It's how God works. You know, it's like the lady poured, poured the oil out of this little vessel. And she poured 50-gallon barrels full out of this little vessel. Well, that's a miracle of God. And, and God does that even in our finances if we are honest and true with Him. And then... <laughs> Something that will strike home, nobody in this room, of course, but would strike home to many, many Americans, the concept of tax evasion. <laughs> Isn't it amazing how sometimes they cannot get enough evidence to put a criminal in jail for his criminality, but they catch him on tax evasion? They, they can't prove that he's actually head of the mafia and gotten all these hundreds of millions of dollars through pornography and prostitution and drugs and robbery and everything else. But they can prove he's living beyond his normal income, whatever that was. And therefore, he's obviously gotten money for which he hasn't paid taxes, so we'll throw him in the clink for 10 years for tax evasion. Matthew chapter 22, we read this beginning at verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and counseled together how they might trap him in what he said. They said, and they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth, and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. They brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God, God's. There are things which are Caesar's. There, are, there is a due tax and a just tax that we must pay. And whether we like it or not, or whether we listen to these people who, who talk about how our tax system is extortionate, 
It may be, I don't know, but we still must do God meet the need. Is God so short shortchanged that if if our taxes seemed a bit too high to us, he can't meet our need? Remember what happened when uh, the the temple gar guardians asked Jesus and his disciples whether they paid the uh, the temple tax or not? Did Jesus say, no, I'm the son of God. I don't pay any taxes here. Well, he told them to go out and go fishing. And they pulled up the uh, fish, and in the mouth of the fish was the money. That's not the normal way by which we get our uh, income. But that just is a way of demonstrating <laughs> that God meets our needs, even if we don't think the tax is right. Romans 13 kind of clarifies this a little more. Verse 6. For because of this you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render all to all what is due. Tax to whom tax is due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. Now I'm not saying that we in a country which is created of the people, by the people, and for the people do not have a responsibility to hold our government responsible for how it taxes and what that money is used for. I'm not saying that. And, and we can buy our votes and, and buy our letters to Congress or whatever else, try to change the system. That's perfectly fine. But at a certain date, if a certain tax is due, we are obliged to pay it, if it is ours to pay, whether we like it or not. And whether we like where it goes or not. Did Jesus say, well, no, I'm not going to pay um, this money to the government of Caesar because Caesar uses these troops to go over and conquer people and enslave them. And that's immoral. Jesus didn't say that. Pay the tax. Render to Caesar. What is Caesar's? It's not our responsibility to pass judgment. If as much as we can change that legally and properly by prayer and voting and so forth, that's fine. But to try to make our protest by not paying the tax, I don't think is biblical. There are three or four other covert ways in which theft occurs, which I think are important for us to note, uh, because I, I think we can be uh, tempted in some of those areas. And so I, I will not try to rush through them this morning, but pick up with them uh, next Sunday morning.